Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. I struggle with how electoral politics works in this country. It seems to have optimized for some of the worst possible outcomes. Just look at what's been happening in Congress, I mean, going back decades. The system, always far from perfect and imprinted by the power of slavers, now seems to be descending into a novel kind of tragedy. At the same time, deep in my bones, I believe in democracy. Our guests this morning offer us a way out, a way to keep the people power without some of the distortions of politics. For our second installment in our Doing Democracy series, a political scientist and a philosopher offer their ideas for democracy without elections. That's all coming up next. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When you're confronting a radical idea about how the United States could work differently, I think a lot of us have developed a reflex. Nope, we say, how could that get through the Senate? Or perhaps you have your own version of institutional impossibility. The political imagination in this country has become so stunted, curving and twisting like a tree buffeted by ocean winds. For real structural change, the gridlock is more or less permanent. So here's what I ask of you this morning. Let's suspend that reflex. And as part of our Doing Democracy series, let's hear from our scholars about their ideas for democracy without elections, without immediately jumping ahead to the implementation phase, because this is some inspired and fascinating work. We're joined this morning by Ellen Landemore, a professor of political science at Yale University and the author of Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. We're also joined by Alexander Guerrero, who is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, author of a forthcoming book, Laudocracy, Democracy Without Elections. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Ellen, let's start with you. For many people, democracy sort of equals elections. Um, What's wrong with elections? Um, Well, first, I would like to draw a distinction between popular votes and elections because mm-hmm. elections are just a subset of popular votes. So I do think that, you know, there's a large place for popular votes in a democracy. But elections as a subset that allows us to select our representatives, to me, seem less and less essential and, in fact, quite counterproductive. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, the Greeks didn't have them. Uh, and you can think of countries today like Switzerland that place a lot of emphasis on direct voting on issues by citizens. 
not just on, on the selection of candidates. Mm. And what's wrong with selection is that they, they, they are based on human choice, and human choice is homogenizing and drawn to salient figures. There's a famous uh, French scholar called Bernard Menin, who long long time ago said that elections are based on a principle of distinction, right? Like votes are going to flock to the, the, the sort of uh, social elites, the socioeconomic groups that, that attract uh, attention and the focus of large masses. And that doesn't make for a representation that is actually truly representative of the larger public. It doesn't sort of uh, distribute power equally. And so there are other methods like random selection that would do that better. Well, and when you say it's not representative of the larger public, you don't just mean on a demographic basis, but also some of these other qualities that we might think about, like height or introversion, right? This could be democracy for introverts, right? Um, there are there are all these other characteristics that electoral politicians tend to embody that uh, are, are less represented in the general public. Correct. But I also want to say that for me, a representation is not just tracking the democratic demographic features, right? Whether it's introversion or height or, or ideology, it's really sort of acting on, on behalf and for other people that are not there. Uh, and then you hope that it's a good form of representation. And, and so it means that it needs to do things that are good for them, right? And so what I, what I, what I want to argue in my work is that if you get a, a more descriptive form of representation, representation that tracks better the demographic features of people, you will also get a better uh, substantive representation, if you want, something that tracks their interests, needs, and preferences. Mm. Alex Guerrero, um, specific to the American political context in this, our 21st century, what problems do you see in how our elections are working? Um, so many, <laughs> it's hard to, uh, hard to enumerate them. So, uh, here's one, I think elections really divide us into teams so that every two or four years we're in these existential conflicts with people on the other side. And that often makes it really hard for us to work together. Often, I think elections pick up on things we're already prone to in terms of in-group and out-group thinking. And that leads to all kinds of corrosive effects and polarization and vilification of the other side. So that's one kind of problem. I think elections also provide a kind of short-term incentive for elected officials to just think about the very near-term issues. They can do things to benefit or you know, make our lives better in the short term, but often ignoring problems with longer time horizons. Things like climate change, I think mm -hmm. we do really poorly with. I think elections to work well require serious accountability where we know enough about what our elected officials are actually up to, how they're spending their time. I think in the absence of that, we get a lot of capture by special interests where rather than working on problems that benefit all of us, they end up working on a you know, few things that actually are to the benefit of the most powerful, most well-resourced who can effectively lobby. And then I guess finally, really echoing something that uh, Elen said, I think elections really pick out the social elite among us. So uh, an elite in certain ways, as you mentioned, I think they select for people who want power over others. And I think that might trouble us. There might be quite a few people in the community who could contribute to political decision making, uh, all kinds of backgrounds that aren't well represented, people who are not lawyers or business people, but are you know, scientists or, uh, you know, primary caretakers of children or first generation immigrants, all kinds of people who are currently underrepresented in the political system. Mm -hmm. So 
Uh, Ellen mentioned that there, this idea has its roots, like, you know, kind of all the way back in, in Greece and in Western thought. How, how did the system work there? It's a good question, and I'm no expert. So there are people who are kind of scholars of ancient Athens, and there were several different institutions of government. Uh, one of the things worth, a couple of things worth pointing out. One, you know, Athens was a city-state, relatively small scale, and so things might be possible there that might be harder at a kind of 300 million person mm. scale. Uh, another thing to think, uh, you know, they were the random selection was only over certain members of the community, right? So not everyone is men with a certain kind of property standing for the most part. Um, and so that also, I think, is a kind of limitation. Uh, but several of the main institutions that, you know, I think, you know, four or five prominent uh, institutions that were uh, filled by random selection. And the the basic thought was that this is the truly democratic way to do things. So Aristotle says, if you want democracy, use lot. If you want oligarchy, use elections. Hmm. Ellen, do you have anything to add on on Athens or, or tracing this idea kind of through through the last few millennia? Yeah, well, uh, for all the, the limitations that uh, Alex rightly pointed out, it, it was um, truly empowering of ordinary citizens and centering, uh, you know, their perspectives and needs, no matter the the economic uh, or educational levels, really. Uh, so poor people, in fact, had an, almost more influence than rich people in those settings because you were paid something like a noble a day to sit on a on a on the, for example, the the, the Council of 500, uh, which set the agenda for the Popular Assembly. And for, uh, for, for the poor people, this was, you know, an incentive for the rich people, not so much. So you had a different sort of uh, sociology of, of who was really involved in the decision-making process. And, and what's interesting is that so the, the randomly selected group, uh, the, the agenda-setting assembly, was setting the agenda. And then the masses directly assembled um, you know, first in the Agora, later on, on the PNICs, decided on the issues. And later they found out through, through you know, trial and error that that was a little bit too open to capture, these open assemblies. So they moved some of the legislative uh, power away from those open assemblies towards another type of randomly selected body um, uh, that was in charge of making certain laws. And so I think it's interesting that, in fact, as time went on, they moved more and more towards sort of a lautocratic model. To use Alex's phrase. Yeah. Ellen, do you know, most people out there might be thinking of one governmental system we have that uses this kind of uh, model, which is to say jury duty selection, you know, not not selection onto the actual jury, but, you know, actually, you know, getting the, the piece of paper in the mail that says show up for jury duty. Is that a remnant of this kind of thinking or was it sort of um, something that evolved independently to in our society? Uh, that's a good question. Historically, I, uh, I'm not entirely sure. Actually, I, I think it's connected, at least in the in the thought that you know, um, you know, we are all peers and epistemic peers, even, and we have a capacity for judgment. I, my, my hunch is that it evolved uh, separately because I think the the criminal jury goes back to the medieval times and some uh, mm -hmm. practice among among Norman and, and English communities, something like that, of juries of peers, 
initially they were actually nobles, but then they included more and more people. And I think that the Greek model is, is um, mm. different. I mm -hmm. mean, it was born from, from a different tradition, but but this, I think the intuition behind mm. both is the same, which is that we're equals and we have the same capacity for uh, decisions about the common good or decisions about um, sort of big moral issues. Yeah. Do you think jury duty is a good analog for people to have in their minds for how this might work? I personally think it is, but I'm told in the U.S. it's not a good sort of metaphor because people want to get out of jury duty <laughs> if it's sufficient. But it's a pity because historically, you know, Tocqueville thought, for example, that the jury was like the core uh, democratic institution where ordinary citizens learned about the laws and were awed by the law and 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 learn to, to to flex their democratic muscles. And so it's actually, I think, a good metaphor. But we have to think when, when Alex and I call for assemblies based on random selection, we have in mind um, much bigger assemblies. We're talking about hundreds of people mm -hmm. because when you're only 12, it's too small to be a representative anyway of the larger you know, diversity. And it's uh, there are a lot of strategic interaction that can happen. It's much, much easier to capture. And in the criminal system in, in the US, you, you have also all this manipulation of you know, the selection process to, to kick out some people and replace them with other mm -hmm. people. Um, and on top of that, there's this notion, um, I think, in the popular mind that um, juries, criminal juries are just there to find out the facts when, in fact, obviously, uh, when, when Alex and I talk about empowering citizens on, on this type of large scale juries, it's about much more uh, normative and uh, political uh, mm. uh, goals, right? We want them to make the law. Yeah. We're joined this morning by Ellen Landemore, professor of political science at Yale, and Alexander Guerrero, who is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. They're both working on these ideas of democracy without elections. It's an idea that's been gaining some traction among political theorists, and we want to hear from you. Do you think we should choose our representatives by lottery? You know, what questions do you have about how it might work? We're going to get into some of those details after the break. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. This is our Doing Democracy series. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. America, God bless you if it's good to you. America, please take my hand. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is part two of our Doing Democracy series running between now and next year's elections. We're talking about a radical idea about what to do with democracy, which is to get rid of elections. We're joined by Alex Guerrero, professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, author of the forthcoming book, Laudocracy, Democracy Without Elections, and Nelen Landemore, professor of political science at Yale and author of Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. Um, Ellen, this is something I, I knew was going to come up right away, which is when we talk about de- direct democracy in California, we've had a lot of problems with it. I think we see our proposition system out here as maybe being broken. I mean, we do vote on kidney dialysis because a kidney dialysis company keeps getting stuff put onto the uh, you know, onto our ballots. So listener tweets, how can you have a guest on who claims direct democracy is somehow better than representatives when basically every problem of modern California is a downstream result of poorly written and impossible to change ballot propositions? Might be thinking about Prop 13, for example, which we've discussed on the show. Um, so, Ellen, um, talk to me about the experience, different experiences of, of direct democracy. And if you have a response on the California uh, experience specifically, I'd love to hear that, too. Right. Well, first note that I'm not advocating direct democracy. I'm advocating a different type of representative democracy where the representatives are selected uh, through civic lotteries rather than through elections uh, with party competition. So I'm not saying we should solve every, uh, you know, political issue through a vote. Uh, That's not the, the point. There would be moments of mass voting, because I think that's an important movement of, of popular sovereignty that needs, that needs to be expressed. Um, so let's talk now about that. What about uh, uh, these moments of mass voting? Well, in the California context, my problem with the California example, because I also have a problem with it, is that it's not deliberative enough. It doesn't have um, a moment where um, the politicians or the representatives who should be uh, autocratically elected, if you want, can say, well, this, this proposal is not well phrased or we're not sure we, we can we can have a back and forth and, and put out a, a different formulation and, and then send it to referendum um, or accept it wholesale after a proper deliberation in the, in the among the representatives. That's a model that I think is much better. And that's a Swiss model. So they also have a citizen's initiative and, and uh, you know, referenda set of mechanisms, but they, they, are, they work in in in, um, in they're coupled with a deliberative moment where there can be a discussion about the exact framing. And so it's much less prone to capture because um, corporations cannot push uh, something completely contrived and self-interested because they know it will be uh, sort of uh, taken down in the, in the deliberative uh, phase of, of the process. So that, that, I think that's a problem with California. It took it, took uh, direct democracy a little too literally. Uh, <laughs> that said, I mean, you know, for all the, the criticism of the, of the California model, there are scientists who say that on the whole, it's actually a, a decent model. It gets people what they want. Hmm. I mean, I think um, it, it points out that a lot of people who've done more te- technocratic analysis, say, of things going on in California, like the, our, this property tax law that we have, Prop, Prop 13, um, 
it's remains extremely popular, <laughs> at least among the voting public, right? I think that's one of the things that is is complicated for us here because the, the voting public overrepresents property owners. Those property owners overwhelmingly support Prop 13, whereas, you know, maybe if you took everybody in the state and required it, the election, it might it might look different. But, you know, for the, you know, electoral population, it, it's popular still. Um, Alex, uh, what conditions we were talking about that groups of people, you know, even a randomly selected group of people can make really good decisions. So what kind of conditions do you think need to exist around those groups so that those groups come to the best possible decision? Yeah, so the the kind of system I have in mind, so initially when people hear, let's use random selection, people like, that's crazy. It's never going to work. People don't know anything. How would they possibly get up to speed? So I think one of the really important things, so unlike Galen, I, I am somewhat more wary of having the mass referendum process be a part of the system. So I'd be inclined to do something like take Congress and replace it uh, entirely with a very different kind of legislative system where rather than a single generalist legislature like Congress have 20 different single issue legislative bodies, each one focusing on a kind of distinct policy area. So agriculture, immigration, healthcare, education, um, and then randomly chosen citizens would be slotted onto one of those single issue legislative bodies. So that already reduces how much they have to learn about the different policy issues in that area, rather than having to do kind of everything that you know, a legislature might focus on. Uh, I'd also have a built in kind of learning phase where people initially hear about the issue from experts and advocates and stakeholders about the different problems arising in that area, about different ideas about what to do. And that would sort of be built in at various moments throughout the process so that people wouldn't be sort of entirely just left on their own. Uh, I think also allowing then people extensive chances to deliberate. As Elen was mentioning, I think this is a really important part of the process where people can talk through different ideas and raise some of the advantages and disadvantages. And then on the system as I envision it, they would then have the power to directly enact legislation mm -hmm. just as Congress does. So they wouldn't have to put it up to a community-wide referendum vote, partly because on, on the vision of this representative system, the people who've been randomly chosen would be demographically representative. They'd be a microcosm of the whole. They'd you know be from all walks of life, but they would have also then learned quite a lot about the topic and the issue. And so they'd have a kind of perspective on it that the rest of us, we might have no idea what we should be doing with agriculture policy or healthcare or education. Yeah. Uh, so that's the the hope is that building that kind of structure around it would allow randomly chosen people to, you know, have good informed ideas about how to address the problems that we face. Here's another kind of structure around this that seems necessary to build in. Ellen, you know, one bonus to the electoral system, or at least hypothetical bonus to the electoral system, is that there's supposed to be accountability for the decisions that elected officials make. I mean, Alex mentioned earlier that that's fallen away for uh, a lot of uh, legislators, certainly at the, the national level. How would you recommend building feedback into this sort of open democratic system? Alex, do you want to try that one? Sure. Um, I mean, I think there's different ways of thinking about accountability. So uh, 
on a electoral model, we're trying to pick somebody who's then going to act on our behalf. And so there are worries about, we set up what economists call a kind of principal agent relationship, just as you might when you hire a lawyer or a doctor or a mechanic to fix your car. They're an expert, they know something, but we want to make sure they're going to act in ways that actually are to our benefit. So there's a bunch of strategies about how to ensure that. In the electoral context, the thought is we can use elections and vote them out, right? That's a way of giving them feedback. I think in the autocratic context, these randomly selected people would be like us in various ways. And I think if we could avoid allowing the distorting incentives of special interest and lobbying to kind of come in and bias them. And one way we could do this is by paying them well Mm -hmm. for serving in this role and then conditioning that payment on them not taking money from special interests. They don't have to run for election. They don't have to, you know, raise Mm -hmm. a ton of money to campaign every two years. They can just focus on the policy questions. And then there might be mechanisms by which the community, there would be mechanisms by which you know, the randomly chosen citizens would meet with the broader community and talk to them about what they were thinking about, returning maybe to the communities they're from, holding town hall style meetings, interacting with members of the public, including activists and stakeholders who would be affected, uh, but not just them, right? So there'd be a kind of broader community consultation uh, structures throughout, and all of that would then inform the decision-making of the randomly chosen people. And they'd only be there for two or three years, right? Then they'd be out of that role. They wouldn't be these kind of permanent politicians whose job is to stay in power. Uh, So they'd return to their community and that provides a kind of accountability, right? So if they have done things that are, you know, really not to everyone's interests, that's the kind of thing they would be held for, you know, accountable in those kinds of informal social ways. Yeah. Ellen, do you want to add anything on the sort of how do you build accountability or feedback into this kind of system? Yeah, I muted myself by accident. Um, <laughs> so I would say that that's where perhaps I depart from from Alex. I do think that moments of mass voting are in themselves moments of accountability that are, that are absolutely crucial to to the to the whole uh, design. And uh, because you know, no matter how many of those assemblies you create, and I also have, have an issue with like the sort of uh, specialization of, of, of assemblies. I actually think at least in theory, they should work better for very generalist um, uh, purposes, like for agenda setting or for for generally prioritizing issues or, or this kind of, I, I, I don't really believe that they can, they're they the best tools we have for specialized issue on agriculture or this or that. But um, importantly also, um, even if you rotate quite a few people every few years in those bodies, it will still be a minuscule fraction of the millions of people mm-hmm. uh, that exist in each country. So what you could say is, well, and, and I sympathize with that, you could do, you could replicate the, the structure at every level, the county level, the, the you know, city level, and then you'd, get, you'd have more people rotating over you know, years inside these assemblies, but it would still be a fraction of the millions of people. So I don't see, uh, um, I don't find it attractive to prevent those millions of people of having a say um, at you know on key uh, proposals, for example, but also at their initiative if they think that an assembly has messed up and passed a law that is actually not satisfactory, there should be a mechanism that allow um, you know uh, people who are not involved in the process to 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 you know, collect signatures and then um, call for a for a recall of that law. 
or, or, or on the contrary, because they feel like the, a need hasn't been served by the existing assembly, they could come up with an initiative and put something on the ballot with a back and forth between the democratic representatives and, and themselves. But I think those mechanisms are accountability mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that, um, you know, the, the I would question, first of all, the, the accountability of elected officials in the existing system. Yeah. It's a sort of, uh, we, we keep them accountable for a bundle of issues. So as long as they, you know, uh, manage to deliver on, on a few of those issues, we, we they, they get a free pass on everything else. So it's a very blunt form of accountability, uh, periodic election. So not that great. I think there are other methods um, that we could uh, deploy for, for for a different system that, that uh, would do at least as well. Yeah. And just to back up your point too, right, fewer and fewer uh, elections at the national level are like truly contested at this point too, right? Because we have these kind of gerrymandered districts. People have used power to kind of ensure, like smooth their their path back into to power at the end of their term. So it feels, you know, it's, it's like we were kind of saying at the top and as you were all d- enumerating the problems of our current democracy, all, the, all these problems continue to get worse and it doesn't actually feel like there's a way to, to solve them. Um, Let's um, we're, we're going to come back to reform in a sec, but let's bring in uh, Julian first. Julian in Vallejo. Welcome. Hello. How are you? Uh, great show. I love your program. Uh, you guys do a wonderful job. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, if I may, I'm uh, 65 years old. I'm a retired journalist, California, and I write science fiction novels, among other things. And uh, in the course of, uh, you know, writing up science fiction 150 years in the future, some of these ideas uh, just naturally occurred. And uh, I'd have to say the lottery system uh, your guest has is really brilliant. Uh, That's that's a very, very uh, impressive idea. Um, And I've, I've seen other ideas like that in my work. Um, In in in, in 2005, I was working for a group uh, called the Orion Institute. They're still around, um, and they're made up of a Ph.D. astronomer and uh, I think a Ph.D. theologian, and they're hired uh, for sustainability conferences and this type of thing. And they had another brilliant idea that crashed and burned was uh, known as the Student World Assembly, and uh, like uh, the the lottery system the gal's talking about – uh, you have like a, 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 a every college student in the world through the internet <laughs> taking a non-binding vote on day-to-day, week-to-week issues. So, like, should we send money to Ukraine? Every college student on the planet gets a non-binding referendum vote. So you have a, a billion people take making a choice. So it's more like numbers. And there's other ideas too. <laughs> so interesting, Julian. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. I mean. I think, you know, Ellen uh, Landemore, um, it feels like we're we're at a moment in American politics where on the one hand, we're just completely frozen in place. And on the other hand, it's almost like the backlog of new ideas is beginning to like flow over in the rest of your concept that you kind of call this open democracy. What are the other components we haven't talked about so far that you think are kind of newer or ideas to bring back into uh, our political realm, despite the current kind of systemic gridlock? Well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that indeed, I feel like we're at a time in in history where there's a lot more uh, 
open-mindedness uh, toward crazy idea, radical ideas, and it's a time for political imagination. So I find that very inspiring because I think the situation is quite dire and we've, we've exhausted, you know, the, the solutions we were familiar with. So I feel like there's, a, I think um, Alex and, and, and my ideas, even 10 years ago, were a lot less sort of on the map. And the fact that you're inviting us is also a sign. So it's not like we have the answers, the definitive answers, but at least people are starting to talk and experiment and, and, um, and you know, very recently I was on the governance committee of a citizens assembly in France on end of life. So I went from being this like fringe theorist to, to, to being part of the practitioners who do things in the field. And to me, that's absolutely mind blowing. Mm. So now my, my open democracy um, vision, it's, it's a vision. It's not really a blueprint, right? It's, it's more of a lens through which to see the, the problems we, we face in, with our current systems and, and through which to, to anticipate something different. I think the, the core... Um, institution is a generalist, uh, you know, sort of a parliamentary assembly based on, on random selection. But it's also, um, to me, important to keep um, participation rights at the forefront of that model so that people who are shy, people who don't, who may even turn down the opportunity of um, sitting on a, a randomly selected assembly, mm. because there will be people like that, that they still have tools to make themselves heard. It could be just signing a petition, it could be just, you know, um, uh, discussing on the internet. And so there are all kinds of other ways beyond the, the random selection parts to be included and involved. So I would say that um, the other thing that I find interesting are um, the, the, the use of crowdsourcing and mass online consultation. Um, they can also help uh, randomly selected assemblies have a better sense of where the rest of the public is at. Um, because, you know, again, it's one sample and with one sample, you can have an outlier and they can be making mistakes or, or not quite tracking what the larger public wants. So I think it's important to keep um, the design open. That's mm -hmm. why I, I call it open democracy. So and especially in an age of uh, artificial intelligence now where we have uh, these amazing, you know, large language models that, that can synthesize the, 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 you know, the preferences expressed mm -hmm. in large forums very quickly and. And quite accurately, I think these are two that we should um, uh, augment our existing democracies with. So that, that wasn't really part of my original model, but part of the, the concept of crowdsourcing, sort of really reaching out widely. Yeah. We're joined this morning by Ellen Landemore, professor of political science at Yale University and author of Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century, as well as Alexander Guerrero, who is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, and author of the forthcoming book, Lotocracy, Democracy Without Elections. We're going to get to more of your calls and comments after the break. The number is 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the pretty radical idea of democracy without elections, a, a different kind of system. We're joined by uh, Alexander Guerrero, who's a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University, New Brunswick, author of a forthcoming book, Lotocracy, Democracy Without Elections, and Alain Landamore, a professor of political science at Yale and author of the book, Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. Um, Alex, I knew that we'd have some people would react in this way, and I want to just kind of send this one to you, um, and I, I may add a question on it. Uh, listener Susan writes, this seems like a rather silly exercise. The powers that be, the two broken parties in the Supreme Court, would never allow any of the ideas you all are speaking about. The question I want to add to Susan's is, is there a way to incremental our way to the vision that you're imagining, or do we need to, like, break the whole system and it starts afresh in in lotocracy, which I agree does seem like an uphill battle. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, fair enough. I mean, this is always a great question. I think as a philosopher, I'm sometimes inclined to be like, oh, that's uh, not my problem. You know, I'm setting out the idea. You figure out how to put it in place. But I think there are real questions about, given especially worries about capture and elite domination and control, how might we ever see this in place? And I think few different thoughts. One, I think as Elen mentioned, there's no reason this has to come in initially at the federal government requiring some sort of radical constitutional amendment or something. That's, you know, long ways away, right? The more plausible way we'll see at municipal government, county government, state government, all of those could start to incorporate these kinds of elements. And I think with considerably less pushback, we see states as kind of the laboratories of democracy, able to engage in this kind of experimentation. Similarly, around the world, I mean, we might be thinking, okay, how are we going to see this in the U.S.? Lots of other places have already started to use citizens' assemblies, as they're called, randomly chosen citizens, to work on all kinds of different issues. And many people are studying how that's going, how that's working. Mm-hmm. Um, in the U.S., I think there's a lot of potential roots of thinking, what are some issues where the elected officials are frustrated? We never make progress. It's a huge headache. It's a kind of third rail of politics. They don't want to touch it. They might be willing to hand things over to randomly chosen citizens in some cases. And that's kind of the thin end of the wedge. I shouldn't be saying this on the radio, but then, you know, once we start to see if these work well for us and help us actually address our problems, we might start to be inclined to think bigger and more broad kinds of reform. So I agree we're not going to see it overnight, but I think it's um, a kind of fatalism can creep in. You know, Churchill says these things about uh, democracy, the worst form of government except for all the others. and But I think it's all the others that have been tried, right? And I think importantly, if we see democracy, electoral democracy as a kind of technology, we should be thinking about the need to update our technology, revise it in light of changed circumstances as the world moves and becomes more and more difficult to govern in various ways. Mm. And I loved uh, Kenichi on Discord had 
kind of uh, foreshadowed this, you know, asking about smaller scale contexts where these kinds of juries or, or citizens assemblies um, could be tried. Um, I also think it's such a sign of the American political imagination being so stunted that we have we do have other other countries and other uh, jurisdictions around the world that have already tried these things and tried it years ago. And in the U.S., we're like, could never happen. You know, it's just such an, a sign of, of where we are. Um, another listener writes, and Ellen, this one's uh, coming to you before we go to the phones. Um, this listener writes, under this lottery government, it would be very easy for the people in power to manipulate the system and intentionally grant positions to certain people under the guise of random selection. How do you keep accountability and prevent corruption in a process that can't possibly be uh, transparent? And I'm going to piggyback Luigi's question, too, and then you can talk about some of these issues, Ellen. Um, Luigi writes, if we were to base elections on random selection and appointed hundreds of individuals to represent the general population... How would you still not run into issues with the social elite taking up leadership within the congregation? So it's kind of corruption from within and corruption from without of these uh, these citizen bodies. Well, these are some questions and, and, and serious uh, you know, objections. I, I, I think you can uh, create firewalls between certain branches of government and, and this kind of uh, assemblies so that there's no quick pro quo or, or untoward things happening. You can uh, create ethics committee uh, that uh, participants have to give accounts to at the end or even throughout for their actions. Uh, that's what the Greeks had. Actually, they call them uh, utini. It's a, it was a practice of giving accounts after your service. So I think we could re we could invent new methods of, of uh, keeping people accountable. But what I'd say also is that there's an internal accountability of the vast majority of participants in these assemblies. I mean, I've observed two firsthand uh, when I was an observer, when I was, uh, as I said, uh, on the governance committee. I can guarantee you that ordinary citizens, for the vast majority of them, have common sense, uh, morals, and they are eager to do the right thing. And 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 on top of that, because they're not um, affiliated to a party and I have to fall in line and, and follow a leader within these conventions, you'd have to corrupt them one by one, pretty much. And that's a, a lot more complicated than, than saying buying a party hierarchy. So there are all kinds of reasons why we can be relatively optimistic about the the, the way to keep people sort of uh, honest, if you want. Um, so I'm less, uh, and I, just to, because uh, I thought the question before was, was really good, I just wanted to mention one thing, which is that, you know, maybe the US is, uh, is at the federal level is not ready, but I can promise you cities are already discussing this. I'm, I'm going to make it my goal this year to try to encourage the mayor of, uh, of New Heaven to run a citizen's assembly. <laughs> Uh, and and so it's and and I, I know a lot of people who are doing the same thing in San, in San Francisco in Boston and so it's it's going to happen at the city level in the next two three years I'd say uh, and look at what Meta is doing Meta because we didn't mention deliberative polls but deliberative polls are a kind of mini public a randomly selected public that Jim Fishkin has been conducting uh, conducting over the years everywhere in the world uh, he's done 150 at this point and he's worked with Meta. Uh, to conduct uh, a 6,000 people sort of a, you know, community forum on issues of uh, cyberbullying in the metaverse. So corporations are interested, cities are interested. Maybe the federal uh, system is, is too slow and too desiccated to move, but I actually think eventually it will move. Maybe not right now, but... Wow. Well, it's my long-term dream that the Bay Area would actually have a single and functional city government that would allow us to actually solve some of the, the regional problems that we have. Maybe that's what we need. Citizens Council of the Bay 
area or citizens uh, group of the Bay Area. Um, let's bring in uh, some more callers. Let's go to uh, Noah in San Francisco. Welcome, Noah. Hello, thank you. Uh, my question is, uh, I, at the beginning, we talked about really wanting to focus on the philosophical underpinnings uh, rather than the kind of practical implementation. But I've heard a lot of practical discussion and not a whole lot of kind of what is philosophically mm. different about this from representative democracy. And it, it, it seems to me like a lot of the problems that the guests are identifying that this would solve are fundamentally technocratic issues um, that are also, you know, there may also be technical solutions within our current system. Uh, I guess, yeah. Mm. No, I see what you're saying, but there's a, there's a deeper... On, on the philosophy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, uh, great, great question. Uh, who wants to go first? I know you both have. I'm uh, happy to. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Alex. I mean, you are our um, technical philosopher on the <laughs> on the panel. Yeah, so I think it's a great question. I mean, uh, one of the nice things about thinking about using random selection is it allows us to think a little bit about what is democracy and what do we want from it. And one of the striking things, I think, in modern electoral democracies is how far we've departed from some robust form of political equality where I think, in fact, many people feel very disempowered and alienated and unable to really make any sort of transformative change. And they think the people who are elected don't really represent them. They don't sort of mirror their interests or values in significant ways. They don't look like them, but also they don't think like them. And one of the exciting things, I think, about random selection is you get a really much more robust commitment to equality, where literally any of us might be given political power and all of us are sort of seen as meriting that kind of power. And for me, that's, I think, a transformative idea. And I think we've too quickly uh, come to accept the sort of pretty hierarchical, inegalitarian structure we get from elections mm -hmm. where certain elected officials are almost unassailable in their power. And many of us feel relatively voiceless. And it's true, not everyone would be randomly chosen, but I think for those of us who are not, the hope that we could really communicate and influence and talk to people with open ears who aren't bought off by interests or aren't dug into their partisan ways of thinking, all of that, I think, really would also transform political participation and giving a more robust sense of self-government rather than the relatively thin thing we get uh, where every two to four years we can pick A or B, where we might often feel like neither A or B is really doing that well by us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ellen? Yes, well, so for me, um, th there are two philosophical justifications. One is that uh, you get a more equal distribution of power when you distribute power randomly. That's one thing. And then you also have a sort of more instrumental argument, which is you get more collective intelligence when when you uh, include more voices in the, in the you know, lawmaking process. And so um, that's the not a, a sort of a easy argument to make, but if you think about it, like if you don't want to miss out on any good idea, information, perspective, argument, you'd want to include everyone. And since direct democracy is not completely feasible yet, or perhaps ever, or perhaps not even totally normatively desirable, you want to, have to, to select a subset of people. So how are you going to select that subset? Well, you can pick the smarter or more educated or, or people with money or, you know, socially salient people like we do today and we see the results, it's not convincing. Or you could go for a random selection and then there in this group, you'd have a, a mini portrait of the diversity of views and experiences and, and, 
and you know values that are spread in the in the larger population and i think we're much more likely to deliver good good laws and and good policies when we when we build on that richness and there's this like famous quote i by du bois that i use all the time but he says, uh, the vast and wonderful knowledge of this universe is locked in the bosoms of its individual souls. To tap this mighty reservoir of experience, knowledge, beauty, love, and deed, we must appeal to, not to the few, not to some souls, but to all. And Imol mm. said that's the argument for democracy. But that's not what we've got today. We've got only a few people, the brash, the bold, the ambitious, the power-hungry, who make all the decisions for us. And, I, and it's just not working. Yeah. Um, we have a, I would say that the comments in particular have, are breaking down in kind of two categories. Um, one is, uh, let's, let's call it uh, typified by Scott, who writes in to say, I would love a better way to represent the voices of the people, but it would be naive to ignore that big money runs our elections and society at large. I'm trying to be realistic here. If a new system was implemented, how can businesses voice their interests? They'll need to voice them somehow since they run everything. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I think um, there's the kind of good, healthy way for business voices to be heard. And I think that would come in through, you know, this in my system, you'd have uh, area specific legislature legislatures, and they would bring in experts and stakeholders and advocates. And those would include people from the business community who would have, you know, to declare their interests, they'd have to declare, you know, who they were and where they were coming from. But they could speak to the effect some policy might have on their uh, corporation, and but they would do that in a transparent way, where their interests and the people they represent and the number of people who work for them would be represented. But it wouldn't be sort of behind the scenes, basically writing the legislation and then mm-hmm. buying off people to then enact that legislation. Where we worry that's far too outsized an influence. That's not influence. That's just control. And so the hope would be giving them these structures and they might well fight for more. And I think that would be uh, something that would require constant vigilance, uh, thinking about ways in which, you know, powerful background special interests might try to capture elements of a lotocratic system. I think we, we shouldn't have any illusions that those worries will go away. But my hope is through, you know, as Zaylan was talking about, various structural mechanisms and institutional design might help. One thing that might help is people won't have to run for election. So they can't say, oh, I have to meet with all these rich people all the time uh, <laughs> to get their campaign money, but I'm really working for you, the people. Uh, they wouldn't need that. Yeah. Um, Ellen, the other sort of categories, I'll just read you these two uh, comments, and I, and I think we can we can talk about them together. One is, how would a lottery model shift the government staffing approach we have, long-term staff or key stakeholders and influencers? And Alan writes, this seems like another sideshow to keep from confronting the real problem, which is unlimited money in the political system. Our elected officials need to know about many complex issues. If they're being professional and doing their jobs well, they should be kept in office. If not, they should be voted out. This proposal, much like term limits, does nothing to solve the root problems and indeed could make the, the problem worse. So it's kind of both like, are we losing expertise at the individual lawmaker level or elected official level? And also, how would this shift the expertise that exists, um, you know, among the staff of what would either be elected officials or, uh, or in in this case, randomly selected uh, citizens? That's an excellent question. I am a big fan of experts when they are put in their proper place. And their proper place is to be, as I always say, on tap, and not on top, meaning they should be at the service of citizens 
and not in a position to tell them what to think, which is which is what's the case currently, and and whether in France or, or the U.S. really. Um, and I, I really like if you go back to the Greeks again. I think they, you know, they they uh, they had the view that knowledge should not be a source of political authority, which you might think is Philistine. But actually, what they meant by that is that. They had experts, but the experts were chosen from uh, the category of, of, of the slave population. So, I mean, of course, slavery is not a feature that, it, that is attractive in, in the Greek model. But what's attractive is that they, they made it so that uh, experts didn't have the political status to, to make decisions for citizens. So they were educated. You had archivists, you had, you had economists, you had even, even the police in, in, in classical Athens was taken from, from the slave population. So it, it was the, the, the political epistemology of this is to say um, citizens, whatever the level of education, are the one making the calls and the experts are there to serve and be at the service of, uh, of the polity. So, and I think we, we need to, to, to try to understand the, the, the logic of that reasoning today. And, and for example, in citizens' assemblies on climate change in France, the one that, that was conducted in 2019, there were a lot of experts because, of course, climate change is highly, you know, scientific, technical question as well as a social justice question. And, and they were listened to very carefully. They, they had a, a lot of influence, of course, but they also um, didn't have authorities. For example, they pushed a carbon tax because that's what, at the time, you know, economists, experts, mm -hmm. everybody was pushing for. But the carbon tax is what caused the Yellow Vest movement in France. So, so the citizens said, no, we're going to try 149 other solutions. And that's what they, that's what they did. So, you don't Which, interestingly to... enough, that's where the U.S. ended up, too, with the Inflation Reduction Act, right? And we ended up with no, no carbon tax here either, but a, a variety of other measures to try and address climate change. So anyway, just to say that we need to find the proper place for expertise. And, and that's why I think uh, the more uncertain and open-ended the agenda, the more theoretically I think uh, that that's where the power of citizens should be. As soon as it becomes more, 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 more specific, like, you know, um, fiscal policy or, or uh, indeed inflation reduction, etc., I think there's more and more room for expert knowledge, of course. So I, it, for me, it's very connected to an, a claim about the kind of uncertainty we're dealing with. Yeah. We uh, have one final comment here. Todd writes, Douglas Adams satirically posited a president of the universe who, if I remember correctly, is selected as the person who wants, who least wants the job. Ever since I read that as a teenager decades ago, I have believed strongly in some version of democracy without elections. People who want it inevitably want it for the wrong reasons. We've been talking about democracy without elections. We've been joined by two of the foremost proponents of the idea. Alexander Guerrero is a professor of philosophy at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, has a book coming out soon called Lotocracy, Democracy Without Elections. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Oh, we've also, Ellen, let me thank you too. Ellen Landamore is a professor of political science at Yale University and author of Open Democracy, Reinventing Popular Rule for the 21st Century. This has been a second edition of our series, Doing Democracy. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next hour of Forum with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.